0: Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to look at, we're going to read the first seven verses. Our focus this evening will be primarily on the seventh verse, but I want to say here at the beginning greetings uh, from your brothers and sisters at Point Hope Presbyterian Church just across the Wando. Uh, We're grateful for your church and this family. When we first arrived, uh, you all helped us and prayed for us, and gave us some financial support and so we're deeply uh, thankful for that and it's encouraging to know that we're kind of bookends in a sense on both sides of the wando and so I'm glad to be able to to spend this evening with you and to open up God's word I would love for my family to be with me. Uh, my daughter, Wells, lives in Greenville. Uh, she's serving in kind of a nursing capacity there. Our son, Simeon, is a student in Pastor John's alma mater, so he is in Tigertown. And then my wife is with our community group this evening. We have a community group ministry that meets for our church on Sunday evenings. And so I'm sorry they can't be with us, but um, I'm, I'm very honored and um, thankful to be here with you all this evening. I want to give just a little bit of context because I know it can be a little bit challenging when you are in the midst of a series and then somebody brand new comes in and they preach something that you haven't been studying and all of a sudden you're kind of like, okay, what's this all about? And we don't want this to just be a formality. We're here. God's Word is living and active. Um, We're not just doing this because that's what we do. We're doing it because this is what Jesus has ordained us to do. This is a means of grace. And so we're in the Sermon on the Mountain and... uh, Jesus is the king, and he takes his position and begins to teach. And the Sermon on the Mount is the word of the king to his people. And what Jesus does throughout the sermon is he paints a glorious vision of what he intends our lives, the lives of his people, to become. And one of the things you'll notice is the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, are the Beatitudes. They're these statements, and they all have a certain form. They all begin with the same word, blessed. And blessed is a robust word in the scriptures. You think about Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man. And it speaks to everything being made right. It's completeness. It's shalom. It it literally is benediction. It's what we're going to end the service with tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's standing before the face of God and knowing his pleasure to the fullest. And the Beatitudes are saying, you know, bless it. And so the beginning, the first part of the format is is that there's this general ascription of blessing. And then the second part is that there's some character quality that's drawn out about the person who is blessed. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the meek, and tonight, blessed are the merciful. And then thirdly, in the form, there is a specific blessing that's tied to that particular characteristic. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, one of the things I want you to understand here at the start, and this is very important, so please don't miss this. A lot of the times we come to the scriptures, and we come to things like the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes, and we see those things like a personality profile. Like, you hear about meekness, or you hear about mercy, and you think, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm the most meek, but I do have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we kind of pick and choose the ones that we think fit our personality. And you need to understand that the Beatitudes are not a personality profile. They actually have nothing to do with your personality. One of the things that's marvelous about the church is the church is made up of all kinds of different people, and I don't know you, but I imagine that this room is filled with people who are different. Some of you have different intellectual capacities. Some of you have different degrees attached to your name. Some of you love art, and some of you love athletics. some of you are married, and some of you are single, and some of you have children, and some of you are older. And there's all kinds of differences that exist in God's church. But what the Beatitudes are saying to us is, is that every Christian, every believer, every follower of the king has a certain family resemblance. And the Beatitudes say if you belong to him, Then you look like him. Every one of these beatitudes ought to be present in our lives. They're they're intended to be developed, and they're developed by his grace. Now, I also want to say this because it's important to, to understand this as we get to this beatitude before us tonight. There's an order to the beatitudes. And you'll notice that the first four beatitudes, we're focusing internally. We're looking at ourselves We notice that, first of all, there's something wrong with us, that there's a deficit, that we're spiritually bankrupt. And the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. That we have poverty of spirit, that we are deeply indebted to our king, that we can't make ourselves right, which naturally leads to the second beatitude. How do we feel in light of that? Blessed are those who mourn. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are heavy. We mourn over our sin. And then there's this awakened awareness of what we need. We need meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is something that also that has to do with our lives, and then that leads to the next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, something about us. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking at our hearts. But then when we get to the beatitude before us tonight, there's a transition from an inward focus to an outward focus. It's an awareness of how the gospel changes not only how we see ourselves, but how we see other people. It changes our disposition towards other people that we become those who are characterized by mercy. And so that's where we are this evening. So if you would follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, the first seven verses. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we do pray this evening that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Sinclair Ferguson, when he is writing uh, this preface for a work by B.B. Warfield, he notes that out of all of B.B. Warfield's greatest theological works, the one that he says has moved him, has had the greatest impact on his life, the one that he would call the crown jewel, is actually an essay. It's entitled, "The The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And here's what Ferguson writes. The work that has left the deepest impression on me is his essay on the emotional life of our Lord. It is the hidden jewel of his writings. The subject matter, Our Lord's Emotions is one that Christians have often neglected, and in doing so have deprived themselves of a vital element in the gospel. Our Lord was truly human. He became like us, sent apart. As Warfield points out, he was a man who expressed not just compassion, but also anger. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but also a man of joy. He was sometimes amazed at times. He felt shame. This essay should help you recenter your faith in life on Jesus Christ Himself, and if you read the essay, which I highly recommend to you, one of the things you'll notice is at the very beginning of BB Warfield's work, he 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 makes note he identifies that chief emotion that shows up more than any other emotion in the Gospels, which is attributed to Jesus. Like out of all the emotions that Jesus would that would characterize Jesus, what is the emotion that you would think would be most often attributed to him in the Gospels? I think it might surprise you. This is what he says. The emotion that we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as a going through the land, quote, doing good, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion that is most frequently attributed to him. The divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God, whereby He pities and relieves the miseries of His creatures. It includes, that is to say, the two parts of an internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence. It is the internal movement of pity that is emphasized when our Lord is said to be moved with compassion. As the term is sometimes excellently rendered in the English versions, in the appeals made to his mercy, a more external word is used. But it is this more internal word that is employed to express our Lord's response to these appeals. The petitioners besought him to take pity on them. His heart responded with a profound feeling of pity for them. His compassion fulfilled itself on the outward act. But what is emphasized by the term employed to express our Lord's response is, in accordance with its very derivation, the profound internal movement of His emotional nature. Out of all the the emotions that would be attributed to Jesus, the one that's most often attributed to Him in the Gospels is divine mercy. Now, that ought to kind of stop us in our tracks, because one of the things that we know about the king is, is that his desire and His design is that we would look like Him, that we would resemble Him. And I would suggest to you that that's not something that comes very easy to us. The uh, sanctification, as I know, and I know that Pastor Payne preaches this you know, week in and week out, and I know that you all can probably quote the catechism just as well as I can. But sanctification is a work of God's free grace where, where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. And we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That the whole intent of Jesus the King is that we would look like him, which ought to cause us to think, well if this is the if this is the emotion that's most often attributed to him, then surely it's an emotion that ought to be often attributed to us. Well, some years ago, way back in uh, I guess 1995, the very beginning of the year, my wife Kendall and I, we weren't married at the time but we were going through premarital counseling with Dr. Rod Mays, And so he had us take a personality profile test. And one of the things that, you know, he graded the test out, I don't remember which one we took, and when we came back, one of the things he said was that there is a pretty noticeable deficit in your life. There's an area of your character that is deficient. He said it's not really surprising because I find this very often in young couples. And he said in a nice way that young couples tend to be Pretty self-centered, pretty, self, uh, pretty self-consumed, which was the case for us. And he said, and what it is, is that you lack compassion. You lack mercy. And I would suggest to you that I grew up in the church. I was a child that was raised in Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, under the ministry of Paul Settle. I heard the gospel preached. Actually, Lig Duncan, who's the chancellor of RTS's dad, is the one who taught me the confession of faith and the standards. And I learned a lot of theology, and I had a lot of answers. But by the time I, I reached time to get married, the thing that I lacked was mercy. Now, kind of fast forward many years, uh, Back in 2013, I had the incredible honor to plant my first church, or the first church on behalf of the Lord Jesus, and I had the honor of giving it a name, and I decided that this is a long story, which I won't get into, but the name of the church was Mercy Presbyterian Church, and I remember asking a pastor, well, excuse me, an elder friend, an older elder friend of mine, what he thought of the name, and I love this guy, I asked him because he always tells me the truth. And he is a father in the faith to me. And he said, you know what? I don't like it. He said, it sounds too much like a hospital. And when he said that, I knew that was the perfect name. Because that's what I wanted it to be about. I wanted it to be a church that exudes that attribute, that emotion that's most often identified with Jesus. Now the problem with mercy is is that mercy involves messiness, and mercy is back. You know, you think about the Karate Kid movie. Mercy is for the weak, and we don't like weakness. We like strength, and we like winners, and we don't like losers. And so, we don't like to deal in the area of weakness. John Stott says the world prefers to insulate itself against the pain and calamities of men. I'm not so sure the church is not exactly the same. What I'm struck by is that emotion that's most often attributed to Jesus, I think perhaps, and maybe I would say especially in the Reformed church, is the one that perhaps might be the most lacking. But it's very important because what Jesus is saying is that when mercy comes to us, it goes through us, and when it goes through us, there's mercy for us. And want wants to see all that together tonight, but essentially the message is simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want to talk about three things, and I'll try not to belabor the points, but I want us to see, first of all, what mercy is, secondly, what mercy does, and thirdly, why mercy matters. What mercy is, what mercy does, and why mercy matters. You know, what is mercy? And the first thing you need to understand about mercy is mercy is personal. Mercy is directed at people, people who have been created in the image of God. It's, it's compassion for people in need. It always deals with what it sees with regard to pain and misery and hardship and distress in other people's lives. Pain, misery, and hardship, that's a result of the fall, that's a result of the sin. Sometimes the person's own sin, sometimes the sin of another person. But mercy is compassion towards that person. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Mercy is especially associated with men and their misery. Mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin so that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. It's a learned patience. It's a long suffering. It's, it's a tenderness. It's an empathy. It's a compassion. It's, it's kindness, but it's not just kindness. It's kindness to someone who's in the very pit of misery. The second thing about mercy is mercy is representational. And you might think, well, mercy is representational in the sense that we represent the king, that we are the body of Christ. And so we show mercy, we exude mercy on his behalf, and that would be true. But mercy is also representational in the sense that think about Where Matthew in his gospel says, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. And so forth and so so on. And the person says, when did I see you hungry and give you something to eat? And when did I see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And then Jesus ultimately says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. It's representational. What we do for other people, there's a very real sense. We do it unto the Lord. We do it for him. Now, we've already said this that mercy is not a personality test. It's not a personality characteristic. It's not like, well, that's not something that I have. The gospel works mercy in all of God's people. And one of the things that's a mistake, particularly in our current culture, is to think that mercy is about being easygoing. It's like being laid back. It's being, you know, someone who's very calm. And that's not what mercy is. Mercy is very practical. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, there's this, you know, older devil, uh, Uncle Screwtape, who's writing to his younger nephew, Wormwood. And he says this in in the book. Screwtape writes to Wormwood because he's concerned that this, this, you know, victim, this patient is growing and something has to be done about it. And so Screwtape says this, keep his mind focused on the inner life. Keep his mind away from the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced spiritual ones. You know, it's interesting because I think when we think about something like mercy, it probably doesn't get a lot of like air time, a lot of heart time, a lot of meditation time in our lives because it sounds so weak. It sounds kind of limp. It's like we want something more than that. And yet that's what the king wants for us. Now, lastly, I'd like you to see when we're thinking about what mercy is, is this mercy is costly. Mercy is costly. It's taxing. It involves effort. It involves sacrifice. It doesn't come easy. That's what mercy is. But secondly, I want us to consider what mercy does. And I'll go ahead and give you a little bit of a warning. This is a longer point. The last one is shorter, so we're going to be in this for a little bit. But I want us to think for a few minutes about what mercy does. Does and I want you to think of this mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing something to relieve and to restore dignity in another person's life, someone who is an image bearer, somebody whose life has been affected and broken perhaps by their own sin or by the sin of someone else. Mercy relieves the consequences of sin, and I don't know, maybe that's something we have to wrestle with, but that's what it does. It does it in the lives of both the sinner and the person who's been sinned against. It extends relief. It helps. It cures. It heals. Now, what mercy doesn't do is mercy doesn't show up on the scene for somebody who's in the pit, somebody who's in misery and say, my goodness, how in the world did they get themselves into this fix? I cannot believe that they got themselves into this mess. You know why mercy doesn't do that? Because what mercy does is it realizes that it could be you, that you could be in that pit. And if you were in that pit, you would need somebody that would come and relieve your suffering, someone who would come and offer relief, someone who would come and and bring healing. What mercy does is it shows up on the scene, a scene that is very hard and very grueling and very distressful. And it says, how can I help? That there's two things, as we said earlier, and B.B. Warfield noted about Jesus and his exuding mercy, that there's something internal that happens. There's a feeling, there's a reaction that we have at the level of the heart when we see another person in misery and our heart aches and hurts for them. And then there's an outward external response where we go to work for them. One of, the thing, one of the people that's kind of given me some help on this and some common grace insights, and I'm not sure if this is somebody that you know, you're aware of or somebody that you would agree that you would benefit from, but I've found it to be great, ben- greatly beneficial to me, is a lady by the name of Brene Brown. She's a professor at the University of Houston, and what she has done is a lot of research and a lot of studying, and she, studies the, she has studied the difference between empathy and sympathy, Now, I know we're in here, and we could say at the end of the day, it's just a matter of semantics, and she's got the whole thing wrong. Perhaps she has. But I think there's something that we can learn from her. Now, of course, sympathy in the Bible includes empathy. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But she she draws this kind of comparison, and she says that there's this lady named Teresa Wiseman, who's a nursing scholar who has studied various diverse professions where empathy is relevant. And what she has determined is that there are four qualities that that basically characterize what empathy looks like. She says the first quality is perspective-taking, that we come up upon it and there's something that happens internally. We, we see this person and our heart aches for them. We see this person and we place ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. The second thing that empathy does is it stays out of judgment. Now, she says it's not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. She's talking to secular folks. I would suggest to you that I think it's probably very relevant for us as well. At least I can say that about myself. I'm pretty good at making a lot of judgments. The third thing, she says, is that it recognizes emotion in, the other, in other people, in the other person. It recognizes the emotion. It recognizes the overwhelmness of the person who's in great distress. And then lastly, it communicates that. It says, I see you. I see what's going on. She she puts it this way she says, empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space where somebody is kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then when they look, and then we look and we say, Hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. She says, Sympathy is when we say, Oh, it's bad. Do you want a sandwich? Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because we have to connect with the person. Now, let's think about it for a moment because I know this is Common Grace Insight, and she professes to be a believer, but I'm not sure whether or not she's a follower of Christ, and we could easily write it off and say, that just sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, except for the fact that we read that very thing about none other than our great high priest. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 14. Since then we have a great high priest It's what we talked about earlier in our confession of sin, and and, and really this very thing I want to point out secondly, the second scripture came up in our confession. You'll remember that there's a teacher of the law, and he comes up to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, how do you read the law? What does it say? And the man says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. But then Luke notes that seeking to justify himself, the man asked Jesus a question And who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. You'll remember the man that was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was, he stumped, these robbers, you know, took hold of him. And they stripped him and they beat him. And they left him naked and half dead. And a priest and a Levite came upon the scene and they passed him by. And then Jesus says, to the man who fell among the robbers. Listen to this. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I wanna, you know, one of the things you need to note about the Samaritan is when he comes upon the scene, he seeks to bring healing and relief. I would suggest to you that what the Samaritan does is he deals with this man's felt needs. He sees this man who has all these needs that he's feeling in the moment, and he deals and he addresses the man's felt needs. Now, I don't know if this is true of you, but this was true of me for most of my life. I used to think that there were two kinds of needs in the world, felt needs and real needs. And what the church does is the church is in the business not of addressing felt needs because that sounds kind of weak. What the church is in the business of doing is addressing real needs. And then I realized that I was wrong. Because actually in the world, there are two kinds of needs. There are felt needs and there are unfelt needs. There are needs that people have. They're lost in sin. They're lost and they don't know it. They don't feel it. They have needs they feel and they have needs they don't. And one of the things that's marvelous is that when we address people in their felt needs, very often doing that is the doorway to meeting them in their unfelt needs. I'll put it to you this way. I have a friend of mine, his name is Matt Lucas, and he is a pastor in the ARP now in Hendersonville, North Carolina. But he and I both spent some time together serving RUF. Before he was a campus minister, he was a fill-in, we call him Band-Aids, at Clemson. And he took, or maybe this was at Missouri, I actually can't 100% remember, but he took a group of students, 35 students, to summer conference, which is kind of the highlight, the end of the year. It's It's a marvelous week at the beach in Panama City. And having been there 11 times, I can say it's amazing to see what the Lord has done there. And one of the students that came with their group was a guy named Jason. Now, the issue with Jason that caused Matt a lot of anxiety and concern is that Jason was a paraplegic from birth. He was confined to a wheelchair. And Matt kind of did the math and realized that the beach could be a very lonely place for a college student confined to a wheelchair. I mean, how's this going to work? And so they went to the beach, and at some point, Matt pulled Jason aside, and he asked him a question. He said, have you ever gone through a period in your life where you struggled with resentment toward God? And Jason responded, why? What reason do I have to be resentful? He said, my mama told me never to be like that, and... Not only that, God has blessed me. He has given me you as friends. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, here's what he meant. You see, after lunch, when the seminars were over and it was time to go to the beach, a group of guys that were, in, that were friends from the campus and came alongside of Jason, and they pulled, picked him up out of his wheelchair, all 150 pounds of him, and they picked his body up and they carried it across the sand as it was shaking and quivering, and they took him out into the ocean where the waves were breaking. He had never seen the ocean or the beach in all of his life. And all the kids were out there. All the college students were out there. They were, they were riding and body surfing the waves. They were throwing Frisbee. And who was out there with them? None other than Jason. And they would stay out there until it was time to go back and get ready for dinner. And then these college students would carry him back across the sand. They would put him in a wheelchair. They would push him back to the cabin where they were staying. And college boys, two of them, would take him and they would put him in the shower. And they would wash his body and then they would get him dressed and they would take him to the evening meeting. My friends, that's what mercy looks like. And what Jason was saying, why am I not resentful? Because he has given me you as friends because that's what mercy looks like. They were meeting needs that we might call felt needs, which had opened the door to unfelt needs. And Jason is walking with God. Amazing. Now, the last thing we want to consider, and there's really not a lot to this because Jesus is pretty forthright with it. But, okay, why does all this matter? Like, why does this matter for you as a person? Why does this matter in your family? Why does this matter for this church? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I know that one of the things I love about uh, Pastor John, and I assume this is true about many of you in this church, is that he is a great theologian. And he is someone who very much loves theology. And he's someone who is a man of the book. And so I would assume that this this room is filled with people that are people of the book. Like you're looking at the Bible and you're thinking, okay, i got to take a look at that verse. So you're looking down at that verse and it says, Blessed are the merciful, okay, for they shall receive mercy. So then a question you might ask after reading that would be this. Now, does that mean that we will receive mercy only if we ourselves are merciful? Be a pretty good question to ask. And the answer to that question is, absolutely, that's what it means. That is absolutely what that verse means. It can't mean anything else. That your only hope for receiving mercy is if you show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they're the ones that will receive mercy. Now, the trouble there is is that, and this is where we can get into some kind of sticky sticky situations is is that we could read that causally. We could think that the reason they 're going to receive mercy is because they 're those that show and demonstrate mercy and it 's not causal at all because we already said this also in our confession of uh, this, this evening. The salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone it 's not that they have earned it, but the reason that they receive mercy is, is because they are exuding. People like that are imaging, they are reflecting the heart of the king, the character of the king. You see, if if we're not merciful, we cannot have received Christ's mercy. If you're not a person whose life is characterized by mercy, then I could say it this way. How can you say you've received Christ's mercy? But I would say it this way. It's obvious that you haven't. You cannot have received it. Because when mercy comes to us, it goes through us. You see, we we, we look forward to, if you have received his mercy, then you have this incredible hope that we don't have to fear what the future holds because we know that, We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We know that Jesus on the cross said it is finished, that there is nothing left to do. Jesus has paid it all. And we understand that we are poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We long for meekness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And therefore, we are those who show mercy. We have a disposition towards people in need, and we want to show them mercy because we know that it it has been us. It could be us again. And so we have so much to look forward to on the last day. At the judgment, we have nothing to fear. What do we have to look forward to? A God of mercy. Now, the struggle is, and it's not just a struggle, the hard news is and the hard reality is this. But if you are not a person whose life is characterized by mercy, you have nothing to look forward to at the judgment. Because you will not receive mercy. There will be no mercy for you on the last day. There will be nothing but judgment. But thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus is the one, that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And it was his design and it was his desire since the very, before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us to be adopted as sons, that he set his affection upon us, that he showed us mercy. And as both Peter and Hosea say, that at one time we were those that were not mercy and now we have mercy. We have mercy through God and Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask this evening that we would be people uh, that look like the king, and we know that there's effort involved, that it's not just that we sit and it happens. The Apostle Paul uh, instructs us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask by your Spirit that you might conform us more and more to your image, that you might Uh, pull out the chisel when it's needed, that you would pull out the sandpaper and that you would help us to become the people that you are redeeming us and have recreated us to be. And we pray that you would come quickly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.